Welcome to the Game Changes for Good podcast. I'm Wahoo and this is a podcast where I interview notable and innovative game changers whose work has great social impact. In each episode, I will talk to guests who have in some way changed the game in their field of work, inciting impactful social change. All in the hope to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and by the end of the episode, besides learning about the beliefs and experiences that shapes them, we are also able to tease out their strategies, tips, their secret sauce to being a social impact practitioner. So sit back, relax, and let's jump into our episode today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, a social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching charitable organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia. This is part three of a three-part interview with Ian Yi. So can you explain to us a bit, like, why do you think investigative journalism, not just any kind of journalism, but investigative work yeah. is important in Malaysia? I think it comes back to the role of media in any society in the first place, right? Uh, that's why our new organization is called The Fourth, because we believe in the role of media as the fourth estate in society. So those of you who are not familiar with the concept, um, and a long time ago, you know, normally in most societies, there are the three powers. Last time it was like the clergy, nobility, and all that, right? Three, three powers that kind of control and maintain a society. But of course, in modern times, you have your judiciary, you have your executive branch, your legislature, these are, you know, kind of the, the, the main powers in society. And typically you want there to be, you want it, you want to have separation of powers between these three entities, right? You don't want a judiciary, a legislature or the, or an executive that are all controlled by the same forces. However, in reality, we know that there this separation of powers rarely happens, right? You often have the same people, whether it is, um, uh, politicians, whether it's uh, people with a lot of money that kind of have influence on all three branches. Um, so investigative or media, the, the role of the media is to be a fourth power to hold these other three branches of government or three powers of society accountable. So we are the ones that play that role to make sure that we monitor what they're doing. We tell the people what's going on, what they're doing and hold them accountable for it. And I think investigative journalism isn't like some badge of honor that, you know, you, you know, it's not, it's not that it's just journalism. It's, it's the same as regular journalism, just that you have more time to look into an issue. Uh, so I think that's kind of like more what we need more from the media for the media to play that role as the fourth estate. They need to have the time, the resources and, uh, you know, the almost that sense of empowerment 
to go for it, you know, to take time to investigate issues and hold power accountable. Uh, and for that reason, that's why I say investigative journalism is important. All, I think all forms of journalism are important. In order to play that role, to hold people in power accountable, you must have that uh, capacity to really go deeper and investigate. Yeah. So for that reason, I, I normally say investigative journalism is like uh, a barometer for uh, democracy in any you know any society. Like if you have good investigative journalism or good in-depth journalism, chances are you, it means that you know there's a fair amount of you know uh, democratic freedom in that that uh, country. At this juncture, I want to take this opportunity to let you have uh, some time to maybe explain to people uh, what is the fault, right? So this organization that you started mm. with your team, yeah. uh, when did it start? What is the purpose? Uh, what are you guys trying to do? Yeah. So the fourth is an independent social enterprise to do investigative and impact media, investigative mm-hmm. and impact journalism. And like I said, you know, we really just want to make sure that we are playing the role of what media should be uh, as the fourth estate, holding power to account uh, and speaking on behalf of the people, trying to to defend truth and justice in our society. But you know, when it comes down to it, what we do is very simple. We just create like content that speaks for these values. Uh, yeah. So we operate as a social enterprise in the sense that we do uh, commercial video productions to pay for to pay the bills and to fund our investigations. Uh, we also do some uh, education uh, programs to, to kind of equip the next generation of journalists. We also do impact marketing where we help companies or brands that want to create a better social impact. So we help them with that through our experience running advocacy campaigns, running media campaigns that also work on some of these social issues. So that's that's the fourth. I have uh, this curiosity about how do you guys select particular issue? You know, how do you know that this is an issue right to be worked on? How do you start? And, uh, you know, because there's so many different things you can work on, right? Yeah. So how do you guys select issues to work on? Usually we go with the ones that we know we can make a positive impact on. So usually the list of projects that we have ongoing is very long and we just have to be realistic. We can't do all of them at the same time. So we pick the ones where on the list, like, oh, there's a new development on this issue um, or sometimes it's safe to proceed on this issue now. Uh, we know some of the security risks have been addressed and we are confident that there is a call to action that's going to work. Then we'll say, let's, okay, let's, let's finish this. Let's go for this. Can you give an example like for people who don't understand like, what do you mean by call to action that might work? Yeah, so in some cases, we, it's just not evident yet how this campaign, like how us telling this story is going to make a difference, you know? Mm. And in many cases, these stories have been told before in some way, shape or form, right? Everybody already knows about human trafficking. Everybody knows about drug trafficking. What can we add to that conversation that's going to, again, take one small step forward to making making it better? So yeah, sometimes it's just trying to wait and see if there's a, a way we can contribute positively to it. I still want to explore about like what makes your team or your approach unique. Are there any other investigative journalism team in Malaysia? Because when you mentioned when you started uh, in Rage, nobody else was doing it. Uh, how about now? And what do you think makes your team's approach unique? Okay. 
Yeah, I think there are still lots of good investigative journalists in Malaysia. Unfortunately, they don't get uh, they they don't get the level of support that we got when we first started Rage. You know, uh, you know the NST had a really great uh, like investigative unit. Uh, the ones that uh, uncovered the Wang Kalian issue, fantastic work. In fact, one of them ended up joining Rage, uh, Aliza, who is now doing a lot of great investigative work at the Star as well. Uh, um, Malaysia Kini, who I have lots of respect for, uh, they have a great uh, special reports team uh, led by Idila Razak and um, the, the the Kini News Lab team, who we sometimes are quite jealous of because they do really really good work. Uh, yeah, so their stuff is great as well. Lots of good investigative work there. So I think what we did that was unique was we took a very accessible. Um, video-based approach. So our storytelling was really suited to social media in that sense. So lots of human storytelling, I guess you could call it that. So it's not just, you know, like an article that's dry, dryly kind of telling the facts. Yeah, so we, we focus on finding the right uh, profiles, uh, stories to tell. And we also edit it in a format which is very snappy. Our longest videos would be like 15 minutes and we would cut them down to like... Sh- very sharp uh, three-minute, you know, kind of pieces as well. So I think that's what makes us one thing different in terms of the format, but also the impact aspect of it as well. We don't just investigate, but we also try to create uh, impact. That's where, like, the call to action that we mentioned earlier that comes in. A lot of, especially when we first did that for the Predator in My Phone campaign, where we campaigned for new laws against child sexual crimes, there was quite a lot of pushback especially from veteran journalists who felt like you know, we were crossing a line. You're supposed to just report on the issue, you investigate it, fine. You've put it out there that this is happening, that children are being exploited on chat apps, and that's where you move on. Okay, you can do some follow-up stories, but that's it. Uh, but for us to actively work with NGOs, uh, actively meet with people in government to try to, uh, to, to show our findings and to show... Uh, our research onto what the solution should be, you know, new laws on child sexual grooming, for example. They felt that that is off limits for journalists. Ah, yeah. Is that still a common uh, opinion of journalists that, you know, you don't go yeah. there? I think thankfully, especially internationally, it's slowly shifted away. So most, some of the conferences that I've spoken at, you know, I'd still, for quite a few years, I still get those questions. Like, you know, uh, do you feel like you you have you know there there were ethical issues with you? Do you feel that that affects your integrity and objectivity as a journalist? And uh, in time, I realized that um, I don't have to explain myself as much. You know, I can. Um, at first, you'll still see people who are skeptical when I give my answer, which is uh, so. My answer, I mean, if any of any of the skeptics are still listening, is that we trust ourselves to report on issues objectively, right? Uh, to report the facts and and, and uh, yeah, so why don't we trust ourselves when we report on solutions? Right, you should trust mm. our that's those very same processes where we identify our biases, we research until we have the best you know, until we find the truth and you know we back it up with facts that are accurate. Uh, why can't we do that as well? And the second thing is, I feel there's a space for both types of reporting. There's a space for very factual, uh, like kind of breaking news reporting. Uh, and there's also a space for journalism where it's more focused on impact. 
and solutions. So now you see, especially globally, there's this movement called solutions journalism as well, mm. uh, which which is great. Um, but for us, yeah, we want to take it a step further. We are not just reporting on solutions. We want to be involved in that impact as well. And we feel that there's a space for that. Would you say, you know, there are still journalists who think that, you know, the responsibility of being a journalist, right, stops when you have the story, you have the facts, and you present it to the yeah. public. While what you're saying, a lot of the work that you guys do of actually trying to create impact, trying to create change from that uh, journalism piece is not shared by all journalists, right? It's not shared by all journalists. Would it be because of, you know, because it requires a complete different set of skills to be able to do that second part? What would you think would, you know, would be some of the reasons? Maybe, yeah, I think maybe. I think we were lucky at Rage that we found some great collaborators mm-hmm. in civil society very early on uh, who were willing, who are very generous with their time, especially with Predator and My Phone, could not have... That would not have been a success without some of those NGOs, um, without UNICEF, without WCC. Uh, yeah, so many. I can, yeah, there's <laughs> so many of them. They were, they were, they were really, really great. Um, so uh, we're lucky to have that skill set. But secondly, I think also because there are a lot of media companies that exist for different purposes. So there are some where it has to be strictly um, factual reporting, strictly breaking news. And that's the way they're set up. That's their capability. And uh, and it serves a very important purpose as well. In fact, a lot of the work we do is built upon that. Like we, without this type of reporting over the years, it's so difficult for us to do our research. Uh, so, so uh, again, there's a space for, for, for all of us in the media landscape, I feel. In listening to some of your stories when you're doing investigation, right, I I can sense you know that some of some part of the work uh, could be dangerous, could be stressful, dangerous, very difficult to handle, pressure. So I want to talk to you a bit about like how do you deal with the, these kind of uh, challenges. In the past, I've heard you mention about death threats, uh, danger to your team. You know, trying to go out mm-hmm. and do field work on investigation. So can you give us some examples and how do you guys deal with this kind of pressure? Yeah, I mean to start off, yeah. So I don't think we've had death threats direct, you know, directed at us, thankfully. But we have had other threats, you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll sue you or, you know, mm-hmm. I, things like that, um, which are fairly common. But uh, I think how we deal with it is, uh, like, we started very small, you know. We were a young team. Uh, we were navigating this very slowly and very carefully. And uh, we slowly built that capacity. We slowly built that awareness on uh, where the risks were. And we were also very lucky again because we were kind of given a lot of leeway to pick and choose the kind of issues. So by committing to documentary-style journalism, you get to pick and choose, right? It's not daily news where where the news is, you have to go and you have to report. So in our case, some things that we felt were not safe, we don't do. So we've had to make some very painful decisions on some issues that we knew were important, uh, but we did not have the capacity to do. And in some cases, we also speak to like maybe some colleagues at international media outlets and, you know, if that's something you're interested, you might want to look into. Obviously, we can't give everything away, but, um, but I don't think we need to compete in that sense. So, yeah. So we always, like again, like I said, sometimes we are just waiting for the right moment where we know it's safe to proceed. So that's how we deal with risk. 
And in terms of safety, yeah, as with any type of investigative journalism, and I always say this, there is always going to be an element of risk. Always. You just have to accept that when you become an investigative journalist. Mm. Uh, what we are trained to do then is to assess the risk and mitigate against it as best as we can. So we do have a process, and we developed it over uh, you know, over a few years. And Can you share a bit about that process or some elements of it? Sure, yeah. It's, it's very boring. It's really just about going through a form, a risk assessment form, where, and I always try to tell them, please take this seriously, guys. It's yeah. not just another form. It's not just paperwork. It's really there to force you to think. What would be on this form? The basic stuff is, uh, list out one, two, three, what are physical risks, for example, environmental risks. So environmental risks, like sometimes things that you really like, if you're going to be investigating uh, orang asli rights in uh, rainforest somewhere, what are the environmental risks you might get trampled on by an elephant, which almost happened to one of our journalists, <laughs> okay. right? You, okay. So you have to, wow, yeah. Okay. So over time you realize, yes, environmental risks mm. are very important. You might get uh, dengue, Mm, you might get food mm, poisoning. Mm. So there's health risks, there's environmental risks, there's physical risk. So list down all of them. Think about the different types of risks you're going to face. Cyber risk. When you're doing this investigation with somebody, uh, like especially if you're dealing with sensitive documents, uh, is it going to be? Is it encrypted? Is the, your device's password protected? Two-factor authentication, all of that. So you risk, list down those risks. How are you going to mitigate them? Another thing that we push them to think about is who are the authorities that we are in touch with. So I would always say, make sure that we find at least one officer uh, or someone in a position of authority that we can trust before we proceed. Sometimes not always. Thankfully, so far we haven't done an issue where we haven't been able to find someone like that. So in many cases, and I think this is true around the world, right? In many cases, uh, there is some corruption involved that there might be some officers involved or authority, the people in authority that are involved. But there is, at least in my experience, there's always, there will always be good officers. There will always be good police officers, wildlife, uh, like rangers, uh, when we were doing the illegal wildlife trafficking thing, uh, immigration officers who really, they are there to do the right thing. Uh, it shouldn't come to, to people as a surprise, but I know <laughs> that's the perception, right? That it oh, is. really, I got it. That, is, yeah. But it really is true. We have always been able to find these people. I think if you approach them in good faith, uh, you will find the right people. And you obviously you work with civil society as well. These people have worked with you know in these areas much longer than we have because we're always doing different types of topics every time. So you. Uh, go to the civil society folks for a recommendation and they'll tell you, you know, this, this guy's good you know, or these guys are good. So in your risk assessment, I need you to tell me who is that person and what is their contact details? Are they aware of what we're doing? Uh, are they on standby? Another thing is there's always somebody else that uh, as you are active in the field, uh, one of you has to be... Um, in a safe location, uh, yeah, that 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 is just that you're just checking in with that person. So that means somebody who's back in the office or somebody who's off duty. Uh, before you you go actively in, you text the person and tell them, okay, we're we're going for it now. And then when you're done, you text the person as well that you're done. So that person is then accountable for those who are in the field. Uh, so these are just some some of the ways that we have developed. 
I don't know if other people do it the same way, but uh, I've, I've sat in a couple of like brief trainings on, on these things. So some, I've picked some lessons from them and some from our own experience as well. The work is challenging, I mean, to say the least, right? If, if you really pick an issue that's important enough and it's complex, the work is challenging. Um, how do you handle all this pressure as a team leader, right? Yeah. From the perspective of someone who has to care for the team, make sure that they're safe and get results. How do you handle this pressure? How do you manage it then and how do you manage it now? I think in the early days, I didn't handle it too well, to be honest. Um, I didn't handle it very well. And it was not a sustainable way of doing things. Because after speaking, again, speaking to these the victims of this human student trafficking scam, uh, sometimes it really affects you, you know? You you think you you have to do something, you know? Um Especially that guy, I still remember him until now. It was really... Because honestly, I don't get to go into the field that often. <laughs> Sometimes my team does such a great job. Um, and uh, in this case... so I, But I try my best to inject myself in whenever they go. Just to, yeah, just to be in touch with what it feels like to be on the ground and not to lose some of like, your skills as, in, like, as a journalist, right? So in this case, I went and that story really hit me how he has spent four years away from his family and he has, there's no end in sight. He doesn't know when he's ever going to go back. His father is sick. Uh, he doesn't know how long the father's you know, is going to be alive for. And he says it more, now more than ever, he can't go home. He has to earn as much money as he can here in Malaysia to pay for the father's uh, medication. And, you, and you're like, how can I help this person? How can I help? And he's just one out of tens of thousands of people who have fallen for this scam tens of thousands and even those who have not fallen for the scam those who are trafficked here sometimes knowingly uh, but again the law is designed in a way where it doesn't matter whether they knew they were being trafficked or not because uh, the power is still in the hands of the trafficker so even you knowingly came here think, thinking you were abused the student visa system it doesn't matter you are still a victim of human trafficking you are still bound by debt you are still being exploited and being underpaid um so if you talk about this, then the, the number of victims is probably the hundreds of thousands of people who are suffering under these conditions. It's not something that you just say, okay, lah, we just publish the story and whatever happens, happens. You, you, you just want to do something more. It's nothing noble or admirable about it. I think it's just human nature. Once you've sat face to face and heard somebody's stories like that. And for us, that's the privilege we have as journalists to speak and hear these stories and to be able to tell other people about these stories. Um, so along with that privilege, I feel comes that responsibility as well to then try to fix something. So it's student trafficked. Wow, it's, it was a tough one. Like trying to fix immigration, trying to fix <laughs> human trafficking, even to find that one small step was very tough. Very, very tough. Uh, in the end, all we could do was to call for colleges and universities to implement anti-trafficking guidelines. And uh, yeah, so there were like three things that you could do to ensure that your university isn't taking in a trafficked student. Um, that's all you could do. We all, all <laughs> we tried a lot more. We spoke a lot with immigration, and we found like some really great officers there who took the time to arrange meetings for us to listen to what we had to say, and uh, promised to try to to get to the bottom of it and to investigate and to, uh, if possible bring those involved, you know, to face justice. Um, I don't think much happened out of that. 
but hopefully it's still something that's on their radar and they're still investigating. Um, so I think everybody's work, you know, there will be some elements of your work that keeps you up at night. Uh, so for us, it just happens to be this. And uh, it's a, like I said, like, it's a privilege to be where we are, to have the opportunity to tell these stories. And it's just a minor responsibility to go with that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think you, you handle the stress uh, better now? Yes, for sure. <laughs> like, what do you do? What do you, you know, how do you frame things? Uh, there was a, a big turning point for me was the this Obama leaders thing that mm-hmm. uh, I was selected Tell for. Us, yeah. uh, so it's President Barack Obama's leadership uh, program. So I was lucky enough to be selected for it. And uh, sorry, you're, you're one of the how many how many people selected from I think South from Malaysia from, from Malaysia so far. I think there's about fifteen of us. 15, Fifteen of us, and this is called the Obama uh, Obama Leaders Program. Leaders Program, yeah, okay. or Obama Foundation Leaders, or okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm one of the Asia Pacific uh, leaders, mm. along with a f- mm. uh, like you know uh, some other Malaysians. Yeah. So uh, there was a convening uh, where we were able to hear from President Obama and um, and uh, Mrs. Obama, and both of them kind of said the same thing. They 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 took two different sessions. And uh, the the message was, you're not going to win these battles possibly in your lifetime. You have to accept that. It's always, but yeah, it, it's it's always just about doing your best, taking that step, one step forward, one step forward, and then passing it on to the next generation. Uh, and trust that in time, the arc of human history kind of always moves forward, kind of. Uh, the way things are, and this is something that President Obama said that you know, if you're looking at 50 years ago, conditions now are better, that are way better. We have so much more food security, and yeah, the world has is is in general become a better place. Despite of all the challenges we still have, it has become a better place. In spite of climate change, the climate crisis, we 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 hold on to hope that most things are better and we try and we continue making that one step forward so in that sense sometimes we it kind of just gave me permission to accept that we you know that this just making that small changes is okay and I don't need to beat myself up about it we do our best and uh, know that some of the hopefully some of the interns we've worked with we've had some fantastic young people come through the <laughs> doors hopefully they will continue the work hopefully people who are watching our content um, remember some of these messages some of these values we put out there and they continue that fight um, another thing I do want to bring up and um, it's uh, the the thing with the kind of journalism that we do is that uh, com- coming back to your question on how do we pick the topics? Mm. For me, yes, we pick based on you know what we can make a small step, what that small step, that difference, what's safe to do. But I always think of the bigger picture as well, which is in the sense that it doesn't matter what issue it is that we are addressing, what is the values that is embedded throughout that piece, right? So we can be talking about. Uh, drug trafficking but if you watch the documentary it is really about talking about values of equality in society right how this affects 
marginalized communities more than than anybody else. Uh, that this is essentially an issue of social uh, inequality. When we talk about um, prison overcrowding, we're talking about a more empathetic society. You know, not punishing people and putting people in jail. Uh, for minor drug offenses, for example, like this punitive approach to uh, in society doesn't work. So these are the values that, in time, uh, over you know many years, hopefully uh, become kind of uh, it kind of transfers onto our audience and they, yeah. So so even though they might not agree with us on some issues. Like, for example, refugee rights. We know a lot of people are going to disagree with that. But hopefully at least they see, you know what? There was something in the way the story was told that was very empathetic. Uh, there was a way that uh, it addressed discrimination. And I need to hold a mirror to myself and see, am I being biased? Am I being discriminatory? So these values, uh, I believe, are what's more important. I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people mm. uh, about how to find you and your work online, right? Your you know website, uh, social media. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, if you want to follow the fourth, uh, we're on all the social media platforms. Just search for the fourth or the fourth dot media, the fourth underscore media. Unfortunately, um, yeah, some of the handles were not available. <laughs> uh, but I think the best way to do it is uh, the fourth. Uh, our website is the fourth dot media. Um, it's not ready yet, but there you will see there are links to all our social media accounts for now as kind of like a placeholder site. But eventually we will launch our website, hopefully um, in a couple of months. And you can uh, support us by being a subscriber. Yeah, like a paid subscriber. Okay, so, okay yeah. cool. Okay, nice. Uh, we will also put all this in the in the show notes. I would really like to thank you, Ian, for joining us today, having this chat. So uh, for all uh, listeners, we will put all these uh, links in the show notes, everything that we've discussed that we can find online, we'll put it in the show notes. Is that a message you want to tell them in case you have? I just want to use this chance to one last reminder about the role of media as the fourth estate. Um, it's so important. It's so crucial to uh, any democratic society. The media is supposed to be there to defend your rights, to defend you against abuse of power. Um, and I feel that's just kind of lost sometimes to in Malaysian society um, for to a combination of factors, right? But whatever it is, don't forget that. And if there's any journalist or any media who is trying their best to do that, please show your support to them, uh, not just by, you know, sharing their content, but, but really by paying for that news as well. You know, if there's a subscription from a media organization that, that's doing a good job, you know, try our best to support them. Usually it's only a few ringgit a month. It it really is going to play a huge role in defending your rights as a citizen and uh, and your country and, you know, and, and the rights of your children and your children's children as well. So that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the message. Uh, again, I would just like to say uh, thank you so much for doing the work that you do. Thank I have you. a huge amount of respect for you and the work that you do. I mean, you, you know that. Um, thank you. Thank you for spending the time. All yeah. right. Thank you so much, listeners. This is it. Uh, I will see you again in the next episode. Bye. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? 
or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity. Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, a social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching charitable organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia.